It's not easy to be out of place, far from the familiar, cast away, out of the place you truly belong. So what happens when your home is eaten? When you're part of a people driven out long ago because of sin, living outside the garden among those who do not know God? How can you be close to Yahweh when you're far from his home? This is a story about faith behind enemy lines, about artful resistance and nonviolent refusal, creative, even diplomatic defiance. It's a story about what it looks like to serve God when those around you do not. And it's a story about what might happen when you do. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. They've been walking for weeks. A massive caravan snaking for miles. Thousands upon thousands of citizens of Jerusalem driven from their home by the conquering army of Babylonia. After months of siege, their defenses gave way and the soldiers flooded into the city. Amidst a maelstrom of fire and blood and screams, Yahweh handed Jerusalem over to King Nebuchadnezzar. And, as Yahweh knew he would, Nebuchadnezzar took captive a host of Judeans, the cream of the crop, mostly, the nobility, well-trained artisans, the upper class, and herded them like cattle away from their home. Like Adam and Eve driven eastward out of the garden, this new generation of covenant breakers has been marching east, day after day, driven out of Zion. Unfaithfulness and its consequence, exile. This, sadly, has long been the story of the people of God. Long will it be. What's to become of the kingdom of Yahweh? Amongst the weary parade of captives, four boys, 15 years old or so, handsome, walk side by side. Friends, obviously, judging by the way they whisper to one another, the way they wrestle like puppies during the moments when the caravan stops for water, the way they laugh with one another when one of their adolescent voices cracks. The horrors of being pulled screaming from your home are not to be trivialized, but this Adventure is probably in some ways a welcome break from the expectations, the formality, the structure of their lives as nobles in Jerusalem. A reprieve from the constant sense of destiny put upon them by their elders. You are meant to become someone, to contribute, to lead. Destiny, though, is not that easily defeated. If such was their lot in Judah, it will only be more so 
in Babylon. There it is, the four boys elbow one another, perhaps pointing to the horizon. Babylon rises from the sand, its great rectilinear walls wide enough to race two chariots side by side along the top, encompassing a mountain range of ziggurats and towers. One of the boys, perhaps the leader, a boy named Daniel, tells his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah one of the many stories he's heard about this place. It's been a city for 4,000 years. First, home to the gathered clans who famously tried to construct a pinnacle that would reach the heavens. Then, home to tribes known as the Amorites. And then, the seat of the fabled King Hammurabi, who, more than a 1,000 years ago, brought the region's cities together, including Ur, the birthplace of their forefather Abraham, and created a new empire, Babylonia. This Babylon, though, This is a city made in the image of a new king, Nebuchadnezzar II, a man whose ambition has not only found expression in conquest, but in construction. Nebuchadnezzar has an unquenchable thirst for spectacular building projects, and under his rule, Babylon is becoming something hard to describe. Finally, the army leads the captive Judeans into the city. If they had arrived 30 years later, they would have passed through Nebuchadnezzar's Ishtar Gate, Daniel gawking surely at the 50-foot-high, 100-foot-wide monstrosity and those towers behind it almost twice as tall, the glazed blue bricks gleaming, sapphired by the blazing sun, Dragons, young bulls, and lions sculpted in three dimensions across the bricks as if trapped within the walls, pressing their way out. The Ishtar Gate may not be built quite yet, but this is the level of opulence to which Nebuchadnezzar is leading his capital. The boys walk into Babylon and are pelted by a barrage of newness, otherness. The whole city, it seems, has turned out to welcome home the conquering heroes and to gawk at the procession of prisoners from the land of Judea. Daniel's gaze bounces incessantly, drinking in the torrent of visual stimuli, men, women, and children dressed in strange clothing, whitewashed houses with bright red doors to ward off evil spirits, street vendors selling dates and melons, apricots and cabbage, mullet and catfish, gazelle and venison, and what's that smell? Pork. The boys' eyes practically roll back in their heads as they catch a whiff. They do their best not to stare as they're marched past a brothel, perhaps prostitutes draped against the doorframe, aiming come-hither expressions at the four attractive young men walking past. Most noticeable of all are the images of Babylonian devotion. Daniel sees them wherever he looks. Altars stand on rooftops and in courtyards, in storefronts and atop fountains, flanking temples and guarding the entrance to perfumeries, a ubiquitous homage to the vast pantheon of Babylonian gods. Marduk, the great chief, Ishtar, goddess of love and war, Nergal, god of the underworld, Tiamat, goddess of the sea, Sarpanatum, Marduk's wife, and Nabu, his son, Enlil, Inanna, Utu, Enki, Ninhursag. The list goes on and on. Bavil, 
the Babylonians call their beloved city, Gate of the Gods. They're not in Judah anymore. You four, come with us. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah looked to the door to see a pair of soldiers pointing to them, waiting expectantly. The boys exchange glances and obey. Presumably, the soldiers tell them they're being taken to the palace under order of Ashpenaz himself, chief of Nebuchadnezzar's court officials. Upon arrival, Daniel and his friends are ushered, along with a few dozen other young men from Judea and various newly conquered regions, into a hall where they're greeted by Ashpenaz. Daniel recognizes the Judeans, he realizes as he looks around the room. They're all Jerusalem nobility, and from the looks of things, the Babylonians have chosen the sharpest men of the lot. Ashpenaz addresses the group, something like, I have been ordered by Nebuchadnezzar the Great, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the universe, to take the best of the captives, he gestures to the room full of boys, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Serve in the king's palace? You are the finest Jerusalem has to offer, he says. If Daniel is complimented by the bar he's met, Ashpenaz continues, And now I am to make you suitable for Babylon, chisel you like lumps of stone, teach you real language and real literature, cure your illiteracy, your barbarian sensibilities. You will eat real food, drink real wine. In time, you will be ready to stand in the presence of a real king. If someone is brave enough to ask how much time, the answer may come as a shock. Three years. If someone is braver still and asks if Ashpenaz wants to know their names, the answer is no. You have a new home, a new language, new culture, new religion. Whoever you were is gone. You have new names now. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah becomes Abednego. As he watches the markers of his Israelite identity slip away, Daniel wonders surely how the God of the Jews will fit in a place like this. How can he serve Yahweh in a strange land? This question will, in fact, define Daniel's life. This food is incredible. Before the siege, Daniel was certainly no stranger to good meals back home. His family could afford everything they needed and more. But they didn't eat like kings, like this. 
and Mesopotamia, this land between the Tigris and Euphrates. The sun may be hot, but this vast plain delivers a prodigious variety of fruits and vegetables, freshwater fish, fowl, along with all of the standard livestock and more. These preparations, though, the no-expense-spared spicing and saucing, curing and garnishing, the quality of the beer and the wine, it's all bewitching. Yahweh has his covenant expectations about what the Jews will and will not eat. In Jerusalem, everything was built around those regulations. The farmers, the merchants, the innkeepers, they grew and prepared and served kosher. There was no demand for anything else. But here... Yahweh looks on as Daniel watches the stewards continue ushering dishes into the dining hall for the evening meal. Leek and onion stew, spicy goat skewers dusted with ground coriander, turnips simmered in a cinnamon broth, baked pigeon pies, duck breast and chickpea soup with shallot and garlic, grilled waterfowl, butter poached grouper with pear and fig conserve, apricots and pomegranates, dates and pistachios, eggplant fried in sesame oil and sprinkled with saffron and thyme, cheeses piled as high as Babylon's walls, sharp ones, chalky ones, sweet ones, soft ones, bowls full of flavored yogurts, mounds of rich butter, and the breads hot and crusty, perfectly baked with chunks of fig and drizzled with honey, never has barley so successfully self-actualized. If not these, then dishes just like them. Better, even. And since it's Babylon and not Jerusalem, crusted catfish fried to perfection, braised pork belly with pickled radishes, charred chops drizzled with burst blueberries, sticky glazed pork ribs, peppered young goat gently boiled in its mother's milk, summer peaches wrapped in bacon. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah swallow. Their eyes dart from the forbidden food to one another, to their host. They look to Daniel for guidance. He's thinking. Daniel stands up and walks toward Ashpenaz. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, no doubt, whisper, yell questions at him. What are you doing? What are you going to say? Are you out of your mind? Meanwhile, Yahweh goes to work. Ashpenaz listens as this 15-year-old boy asks permission not to defile himself with the king's food and wine. He wants an entirely different menu, something about his god who has only one god. Normally, Ashpenaz would have someone dismissed from the program for this kind of brazenness, the unmitigated gall demonstrated by such a request. People have been killed for less. But there's something about Daniel, something different. Ashpenaz just likes him. Can't put his finger on why, just seems like a good kid. But the chief official's affinity for this boy from Judea is not enough to eclipse his fear of the king. No, he shakes his head. I'm afraid, Ashpenaz admits to Daniel, of the Lord my king, who has assigned your food and drink. He continues, if the king sees you looking worse than the other young men of your age, 
He will have my head. Daniel takes his seat, and his friends surely breathe a sigh of relief, grateful for the chief official's gracious no. But Daniel isn't satisfied. Soon after, Daniel talks to the guard that Ashpenaz appointed over the four of them when they arrived in Babylon. Do Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah know about this? Do they argue with Daniel, try to convince him to drop it? Don't ruin a good thing, just for your principles. If you want to revolt and lead a holy war, do it already. If not, can we please just accept our new situation and fall in line? We're in Babylon now, and it's time to act like it. If they say things like this, Daniel doesn't listen. Flashes, maybe, a mischievous smile at them instead. Come on, boys. What's the best that could happen? Please, he says to the guard, test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. The guard's raising an eyebrow, but he's listening. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. The guard's eyes narrow as he considers Daniel's proposition. When does a teenage boy turn down incredible food? Ten days isn't that long, certainly not when the whole program is three years. Plenty of time to get them back on track. And if it works, he might get a reward when his charges fare better than the rest. Plus, there's something about this kid he just likes. Fine. Day one. Breakfast perhaps is lighter anyway, and so it's possible the other conscripts don't notice when Daniel and his friends are served something a little different. But at lunch, and especially at dinner, the Hebrews are well and truly outed when, amidst the steaming plates of meat and generously poured goblets of wine, the stewards set in front of Belteshazzar and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, cucumbers, lettuce, boiled beets. What do the other teenagers say when this happens? Do they respond with grace, magnanimity, empathy? Or do they react to this differentiation in a more predictable way? To what extent does this one decision alter Daniel and his friends' standing among the other boys, their experience outside of mealtime? The cruelty of insecure children is not to be underestimated. Day two, more vegetables, and their wine goblets replaced by simple cups filled with water. If there are jeers and mocking whispers, Daniel does his best to ignore them. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah do their best not to regret their decision to follow their subversive friend. Day six. It's likely at this point that much of the fun of ridiculing the Hebrews has faded. The young proto-Babylonians are settling into a rhythm. Meals and exercise, punctuated by rigorous instruction in Akkadian vocabulary and grammar, in the wedged art of cuneiform writing, and in the riches of Babylonian literature. Works like Mesopotamia's prized mythic narrative, The Epic of Gilgamesh, wherein the wild man Enkidu becomes civilized by way of sexual initiation with a prostitute. Despite the limits of Daniel's own initiation here in Babylon, six days in, he's seeing remarkable results. 
He and his three friends are looking quite healthy. Far from appearing thin or drawn, the Hebrews aren't just healthy, they're noticeably healthier than their associates. There's something about them. On day 10, the guard makes an easy decision. Their experimental diet is to become the norm. Vegetables and water from here on out. As the three years unfold, Yahweh enables extraordinary growth. The instruction takes hold, all of it, but it's not just that. Mathematics, literature, language, writing, history, in every subject, Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah have achieved a level of comprehension, of understanding that's almost miraculous. Oh, and Daniel. Daniel can understand all kinds of visions and dreams. This last skill will soon prove more than interesting. It will save his very life. The time has come for your oral exams, Ashpenaz tells the room full of boys, young men, really, at this point. Three years makes quite a difference during adolescence. Nerves run high as each of them prepares to be evaluated by none other than King Nebuchadnezzar himself. One by one, the graduates are called into the throne room. The process takes hours thanks to Nebuchadnezzar's insistence on engaging in long conversations with each interviewee. Finally, it's Belteshazzar's turn. This teenager who rejected the king's custom nutritional plan after being told no by his chief official walks in and bows before the great Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are called in as well, one after another. Surely there is a low hum of enthusiastic whispering as each candidate exits his interview and nervously debriefs with the others. When the names are announced, the four Hebrews are not on the list of young men chosen to serve in the palace. Instead, they are on a separate list. Abednego, Meshach, Shadrach, and Belteshazzar, you are to serve on the king's regular staff of advisors. He will call on you frequently regarding matters that require nuanced wisdom and balanced judgment. maybe even matters of nutritional strategy as well. In the coming days, Daniel and his friends, the boys who wrestled together on the long journey from their Jerusalem home, who cracked jokes and exchanged Confederate glances during those first uncertain days in the program, will give counsel, excellent counsel, to the most powerful man on earth. Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, will decide that the advice provided by these 18-year-olds is no less than 10 times better than even his most skilled magicians and wise men. As time passes, the king of Babylon will cling to the traces of divinity in these foreigners. They will teach him, Yahweh will teach him through them, the grammar of true wisdom. The Creator will love his Babylonian creation by guiding Nebuchadnezzar through these boys. The same way he will love his Persian children through Esther's influence on Xerxes. 
the way he will love his Roman people by influencing those of Caesar's own house through a preacher named Paul. Belteshazzar will provide trusted counsel to Nebuchadnezzar through the entirety of his reign, well beyond it, in fact, serving under multiple kings, even multiple empires. During all of this, of course, Daniel will be a Jew living far from Judea. He will be a worshiper of Yahweh, waking up morning after morning in the city of Marduk and Ishtar. He will serve kings who do not share his convictions and serve them well. He will continue to pray, even when it's against the rules. He will flourish as an exile. The kingdom of Yahweh will flourish in exile. And there will come a time in the not-too-distant future when Daniel's three companions will make a stand on their own, heedless of those around them who whisper-shout questions and cautions. When they do, and they're sentenced to death in a fiery furnace, perhaps they'll remember, as they're marched toward the door, the mischievous smile on the face of their friend all those years ago. Come on, boys. What's the best that could happen? Hey, Justin here. Thanks so much for listening. I hope the counselor and the conscientious objectors blessed you. If it did, and I'd be so grateful if you would take a quick sec to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, This work is pretty solitary, but when I read a review you wrote, I'm shuttled into a moment of your company, reminded that you're out there and that God is using these stories to show you more of himself. It makes me smile and it makes me want to create more Holy Ghost stories. I'm only able to do that, by the way, thanks to the incredible folks who've been coming on as patrons of the show over on Patreon. If you guys continue to become supporters like this, then I will be able to continue creating this show for years to come. Patrons are the reason you're listening to Holy Ghost Stories for free right now. So pray for them, would you? God's gift of generosity in these folks is enriching the landscape of Christian art, and it is putting his stories into the hearts of people all over the world. And you lifting them up in prayer would be a beautiful thing. There are three levels of patronage, and I'm grateful to every person contributing at every level. A big thank you from all of us, though, to the Tours, the folks who provide crazy generous support to Holy Ghost Stories every month. Vincenta, Cheyenne, Boo, Helen, Elizabeth, Scott and Susan, Rick, Mindy, Maddie, April, Eric and Jody, John, Ricky, Brandy, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Julie, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie. Thank you. I see Yahweh in every one of you. Till next time.